Good morning, afternoon, and wherever you guys are, this is Chrissy of the Pemmy James and Chrissy, uh, sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. I kind of hope I said that right. Today, we're actually going to do an actual cartoon that is very near and dear to my heart, which is uh, Sherlock Holmes in the 22nd century. I do want to dedicate this uh, podcast to the memory of Louis Neisner, who actually was the local Sherlockian scholar uh, in my hometown of Rochester, New York. He uh, took over our local science society up here of Rochester Row, which I am a member of and is currently run by my friend William Brown. If you are a huge Sherlockian fan in the U.S. or anywhere, you can uh, look for a local Sherlockian science society. They're almost in every town. Or if you want to start one yourself, I recommend checking out Baker Street Regulars. Uh, they are the North American group. They're also in England all around the world, actually. Um, and they will actually direct you towards a local Sherlockian society where you can talk about Sherlock Holmes, the canon, and also the outstretches of from the actual canon as well. I do also want to start this with the definition of a Sherlockian, according to Lewis. So this kind of gives you an idea of who Lewis was. According to Lewis Neisner, a Sherlockian or Holmesian was anyone who enjoyed Sherlock Holmes in whatever form he took, whether it was radio, film, or print, and it did not have to be the canon. So if you enjoyed any form of Sherlock Holmes, congratulations, you are a Sherlockian. Let's go. There are too many cartoons, but they'll watch them all. The Penny and James to the sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm James Irish. And I'm Chrissy Harding. Welcome to the Chrissy and James kind of sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. We will not tell you where Pemmy is. Yeah, you will note um, our dear friend, Mr. Corgi, will not be appearing in this episode. He is celebrating his child's birthday today. We wish them all the best. And Pem will, of course, be back very soon. Happy birthday to the little Corgi. Happy birthday to the little Corgi. But today, as uh, you probably gathered from Chrissy's introduction, we're looking at a Sherlock Holmes property. <laughs> this is very much Christie's domain. God help me if I get, make a mistake. I was taught by both my father, who did get me into Sherlock Holmes at a very young age. Uh, my dad actually was the son of a British immigrant. So I have a whole bookshelf full of British lit, which as much as my mother would love for me to donate some of these books, they are knowing nowhere. I have a whole bunch of uh, William Defoe. Robert Louis Stevenson, and of course, of course, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Not just his Sherlock Holmes works, but some of his other works as well. But yeah, there actually, fun fact, has never actually been a decade since the print of Sherlock Holmes that he has not also been in one form of media or another, whether it has been print, radio, or film, including comic books. Now at this point, does Sherlock Holmes need much introduction it's almost as if we're born knowing who the famous detective in the Deerstalker cap is. Still, here's the ten-cent version. Created by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Holmes is the single most popular fictional detective in the literary world and almost certainly in, the, in media altogether, 
unless you happen to count Batman as a detective. Who was actually inspired by Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> Doyle wrote over 50 Holmes stories, and literally thousands more have been made using the detective or pastiches, homages, etc. since then. He's actually written 56 short stories and four novels, according to the canon. Uh, anything that's actually been written after his death is actually not sanctioned by the Conan Doyle estate. And if you ever want to actually look into why there's so many um, and they've not been sued in the immediate death of Doyle, looking into the copyrights and the selling, selling of those rights is amazing and how much copyrights have been abused in the early 19th century. It is fascinating. Anything for a buck. Holmes is a fixture of Western media with film adaptations starring actors ranging from Basil Rathbone to Robert Downey Jr. and numerous television dramas. Holmes's material has slowly but surely creeping into the public domain and even his supporting cast notably Dr. Watson and Professor Moriarty, are well-known figures, as well as the memorable single-story character Irene Adler. The woman. Who was no small inspiration on X-Men writer Chris Claremont in the development of the precognitive character Destiny. Mm -hmm. it's, it's very interesting because even Moriarty was supposed to be just a single-story character in himself. A lot of other than Watson and Holmes and Lestrade and even Gregson, which is the inspiration for Grayson in the Irregulars, every popular character in the Sherlock Holmes stories, like his enemies, are normally just one-story characters. It's really the fans of Sherlock Holmes that have made them popular, like Moriarty and Irene Adler. The story of today's show may begin with those original stories by Doyle, but it picks up steam in Scotland in 1996, where Scottish television executive Sandy Ross came up with the premise to modernize the Holmes stories while on a ski trip, or rather, futurize them. Originally conceived as Sherlock Holmes in the 21st century, when they realized the show would debut in 1999 with said century on the horizon, they bumped it up by one. Yeah, the actual um, setting for the cartoon series by fans, they believe, is uh, the year are 21 and 3 AD. So 2103. 26 episodes were commissioned by Scottish television and our old friends at Deke. <laughs> That's such a loose term at this point, isn't it? It's a love hate relationship all based on classic Doyle stories, whether they were fairly direct adaptations or drastically reworked from the original. Of course, I should and did approach this with an open mind, since Deke surely had grown since we last saw them on this podcast, right? Right? Oh, it's Deke. It's, it's Deke. Yeah. You really should keep that expectation fairly low. Now, supposedly, according to some sources I personally cannot find verification for, but seemingly exists somewhere in the ether of animation history of ephemera, this was inspired by the filmation cartoon Brave Star, namely the episode Sherlock Holmes in the 23rd century. Now, this was allegedly a backdoor pilot for such a series of filmation's own making, 
but the financial troubles that company was experiencing pretty much shuttered them down before they could even make good on the project. Uh, would that be a bad thing, considering Filmation's spotty history at best? Well, uh, I mean, it, it, by the eighties, they were getting better, but they were also hemorrhaging money. Yeah, it's like it's like would it would would it would have been a bad thing like that that they didn't get a chance to do the project? I mean, it's like fifty fifty. Yeah. Now. Normally, this is the part of the podcast where I break down the overarching plot and the voice cast for the show. But since we are looking at the very first episode, it would make more sense to hit those subjects as they come up, since this episode establishes a large chunk of what we need to know right off the bat. But before we do begin, this is the first show reviewed for the podcast to use both traditional 2D animation and CGI in concert. That will be interesting. Yeah, I do need to remind everyone, this was made in 1990. It was made in 1998, debuted in 1999. Please keep that time frame in mind as you watch this through the lens of 2023. And for that purpose, this ain't bad. No, it's not. It, it it doesn't age well, but it's not bad for the time period upon which it was debuted. I mean, it didn't age well, but they also weren't attempting to do things that were completely out of their means. The CGI oh. is mostly used for cars and buildings, which CGI can handle. Yeah, they weren't they weren't trying to be crazy with it, which I give them credit. They knew their limitations. They used it for background work is what they used it for. So Let's begin with the beginning, the fall and rise of Sherlock Holmes, inspired by Doyle's The Final Problem. This was written and adapted by series head writer Philip Harnage, who had been writing for animation in general, and Deke in particular, since the 1980s. London, May 25th, 1891. Dr. Watson narrates the scene at the Swiss Alps, where he and Holmes were on vacation and are interrupted at Reichenbach Falls by an old man with considerable spring in his step, calling for the doctor to help a sick girl at the lodge. He's a spry old goat. Narrator Watson should have realized something was wrong because, of course, the old man is Moriarty, and Holmes knew it the whole time, having simply used his eyes and his brain. We'll be hearing that a lot through the show, and just within one minute, it's repeated a good bit. Well, well, Professor James Moriarty. So we meet again. How did you know? Elementary, sir. I simply used my eyes and my brain. For example, eyes. You hunched over to appear short and stooped, yet you walked most rapidly for an old man with unseemingly long strides. Then, in your effort to appear... Old and shabby, you found well-used clothes which were far too small for your great height. Brain? No one at the lodge knew Watson was a doctor. Finally, eyes again. You should never let your enemies see you sweat, especially when you're wearing makeup. Eyes and brains, Moriarty. Eyes and brains. Yeah, it is one of the many lines in canon that is used in this show, which shows me that these writers actually read the canon, and they read the stories they're basing these stories on which as someone who is a fan of Sherlock Holmes I find very awesome 
So it, to me, this is a huge point in a show's favor that is based off of Sherlock Holmes. Because sometimes when they do Sherlock Holmes cartoon shows, I feel they just go off of the pastiches or like the stereotypes of Sherlock Holmes, and they don't actually read the stories. So the two adversaries begin to brawl, and Watson hears the fracas, but he's too late to stop the struggle from leading to a watery demise for both combatants. Narrator Watson laments losing his best friend. Or did I? He asks. Dun, dun, dun. Well, and anyone who actually knows the canon knows that Sherlock Holmes didn't die. So he lived on for quite a while. <laughs> now, our voices so far, and of course for a series intended for both British and American audiences, we have a Canadian voice cast. Makes sense. Yeah, it's a nice compromise. Watson is John Payne, who was the English dub voice of Rambaral in Mobile Suit Gundam, Inuyasha's Rasetsu, and Prince Kieran in the first Ranma one-half movie. And he's voiced legacy roles like Duke from G.I. Joe and Mossman from Masters of the Universe in early 2000s revivals of those franchises. Holmes himself gets his voice from Jason Gray Stanford, easily best known as Lieutenant Disher in the acclaimed live-action series Monk. Mm-hmm. But he's voiced characters ranging from Raditz in Dragon Ball Z to Ninja Turtle Donatello in the live-action TV series from Sabin. The first time I watched Monk and heard Lieutenant Disher, I actually was like, is that Sherlock Holmes? Don't you love that feeling? I, yeah, we were just like, wait, I know that voice. <laughs> It was cool to put a face to a face to the voice because I did watch this when it did its first run in America in the 90s. And then to watch see him on Monk was like, wait, I know that voice. Oh, my God. That's what he looks like in real life. Richard Newman performs Moriarty. Richard has been acting in a variety of capacities since 1970. And the role of his that jumped out at me was Canadian boxer Bear Hugger from the re-revival of Punch-Out! I loved it when you texted me that. You're like, I was not expecting to have a a voice actor who played a video game character in this show. Well, more specifically, a Punch-Out! character who no, is I, nothing like Moriarty. Exa- yeah, and I was just like, wait, what? And you're like, yeah. And I'm, I didn't wasn't expecting that either. So, go team. Yeah. Flash forward to the 22nd century in New London on May 25th of 2103, as we hear a police dispatch regarding one Martin Fenwick. And in the process, we see the usual neon punk tropes of flying cars and massive electronic billboards. Think Blade Runner, just a little more advanced, and you kind of got it. Yeah. It's trying to be neo-futuristic steampunk before neo-futuristic steampunk was an actual thing. Fenwick is being pursued by a female officer who nearly collides with a statue and bickers with her onboard AI, which she calls Watson, who, yes, is also John Payne. Yeah. Oh, I, I love this. This is Inspector Beth Lestrade who we learn to be the descendant of the Lestrade that Holmes knew. And her voice actor is Akiko Morrison, who also popped up in the Veronica Mars movie in 2014. Another detective franchise. Yeah, Akiko, 
is one, everyone who was a fan of this show loved loved her as Beth Lestrade. She Beth, is really good. She's very good as Beth. And it's it's so cool because she plays Beth very well in this show. It, I, I gave you two episodes, but I highly recommend watching the whole series. The whole series is, is more like a serial where all the episodes really lace together very well. Um, you can watch them individually, but you you should watch them as one run because it, it's really good how they play off of each other. And you watch the building of Beth's character over time too, which is great. Anywho, Lestrade shoots down the car and outrushes Fenwick to draw her fire. Fenwick's voice actor is the prolific Ian James Corlett, who we heard previously on this podcast as Dr. Wiley on Captain N, mm-hmm. and of course performed all manner of other roles. Yeah, he does a good job on the show too, as, as Fenwick. Lestrade shoots a laser restraint at Fenwick, but as she takes him into custody, the car he was in realigns itself, and Lestrade spots Moriarty? Yep. You realize later, there, there's hints on how she recognizes him as well, so. Well, considering this is a Lestrade, it's, you know, at first blush, it's not a far-fetched guess that she's well-versed in her family's history to recognize him on sight. Mm-hmm. You know, all the infamous matters Lestrade got wrapped up in, you, you know, it makes sense. And also the fact is, too, is that when you go to, uh, later on in the episode, I'm probably getting ahead of you, but when they end up actually going to the Sherlock Holmes Museum, there's a picture of him as as him. Also, if yes, in this world, Sherlock Holmes is a real person and he is very well known. It makes sense that Moriarty was very well known, too. So people would know who, if you're in law enforcement, you would know the Napoleon of crime. Back at New Scotland Yard, the uh, headquarters, Chief Grayson, voiced by William Samples, chews Lestrade out for all the damage over just one rogue geneticist. That's an important plot point, people. (laughs) But she insists it mattered since his cryptic programming didn't take. Said programming is apparently a brain rewriting? Okay, this is starting to get a little dystopic for my tastes. I never said this was a utopian environment. You are watching literally a mystery crime cartoon. Well, I never expected expected you to tell tell me one way or the other. I, I'm just surprised. <laughs> Family cartoon, heavy political implications. Those oh, don't always mix. Oh, it, it gets even thicker from there. It sure does. Lestrade observes someone has found an override, which a boastful Fenwick confirms just before he fakes being reprogrammed. Oh, it's an Oscar-worthy performance, too. It's fabulous. Lestrade notes to the robotic Watson that Fenwick is overacting and wants to know what's the root of all this, which leads her to the Sherlock Holmes Museum at, you guessed it, 221B Baker Street. Which is the actual location of the Sherlock Holmes Museum in real life. It's closed due to low attendance and budget constraints, but Fenwick doesn't mind that. Nope, not at all. He's after what looks like Moriarty's disguise from the episode opening flashback. Wonder why. Hmm. Wonder why. Lestrade makes her move, but 
Fenwick disappears in the old London underground. At least I think that's what it is. Yes, it is. It's actually it's uh it is the old London underground. It's it's one of the old underground. It's the it's one of the old tube stations. Watson tells her she's not allowed to go unaccompanied. That must mean he doesn't count. And she actually agrees, citing the rats. I'm not going down there. There's rats. As a squeaky toy-voiced rat wanders into the scene. R-O-U-S's, these are not. No, they're just regular rats. <laughs> but, you know, phobias are phobias. I don't know if so much it's a phobia as so much as she's baking a joke. <laughs> Instead, she returns to the museum, confirming that, yes, that's the disguise Moriarty wore at the falls. With Watson's analysis being no help, he spots a portrait of Moriarty next to the case the disguise was in, and she comes to the conclusion that it frankly all shouldn't be possible since Moriarty died over 200 years ago. No shit, Sherlock. What? Wait, wait, what? Oh my god, I am so proud. You oh, swore. it's right there. I, I know, but <sighs> James, you never swear on this podcast. That's my job. But I'm, I'm rubbing off. It's I'm, I'm so proud. You're growing up. Mm. I'm so proud of this moment. I'm, I'm treasuring this. Okay, it's over. Okay. Her work is eventually interrupted by a report on cryptic processes losing their effectiveness and a semi-related story on reanimating dead cells via a process from Sir Evan Hargreaves. Lestrade hypothesizes a, a link between the two stories, and with a quick look in the real Watson's journal, she figures Moriarty might have broken the code of the cryptic process. She says she knows it was Moriarty, and she's not crazy. The chief disagrees. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> this is this is partially also in the canon too, because Grayson in this is also based off of Gregson, who was the chief inspector over. Lestrade. And uh, yeah, this this is pretty much how their interactions usually went in the canon. So I, I like this nice touch. <laughs> but the chief also demonstrates why he's skeptical with an elasto mask that comes with a voice disguiser. Okay. And it gets stuck. But still, point to the writers for justifying this. I know, and I love the fact that it gets stuck. The techies make it look so easy. <laughs> A stolen hovercraft is reported found and needs an inspector, and Lestrade is called back to the field for it. On the scene, there's unidentified DNA, which should be impossible since everyone's DNA is in the database. Whoa! Holy invasions of privacy, Batman! Do you want the plot for V for Vendetta? Because this is how you get the plot for V for Vendetta. (laughs) You have to remember this was the 90s and this was actually a concern at the time in the 90s when they were actually starting to map the human genome. This was actually one of the things that did come up was if you map the human genome, you'll start to get to a database of everyone's DNA in it. Can we say that this is actually still a very relevant plot point today? Yeah, yeah, it is. But it also would make sense that there would be a a worldwide database with DNA in it. Because we have that now, but just for criminal DNA. Call CODIS. Either way, with all this in mind, Lestrade effectively breaks into an old storage facility 
while narrating a memo to Grayson that she intends to revive Sherlock Holmes. Dun, dun, dun. This escalated quickly. Well, if you have Moriarty, who better to take him on than Sherlock Holmes? You see, he survived his fall and went on to solve many more cases, whether or not Sir Doyle wanted to write them. Uh, spoiler alert, he did. That's how we have 60. That's how we have 60. And Holmes would instead die of old age. As she leaves and complains about Watson already sending the memo and not being able to interpret human sarcasm, they fly off to Sir Evan Hargreaves, whose process might have a chance to revive Holmes. I do want to just interrupt real quick. There's something cool about this, too, and I do want to point this out, is the fact that Sherlock Holmes is actually encased in honey, which I love the fact they put this detail in here because when Sherlock Holmes retires from detective work, he becomes a beekeeper and he actually writes papers about the preservative property of honey. So it made sense that he actually, when he died, would encase himself in honey, which is cool. Hargreaves' game as much to help her as to prove he had nothing to do with Moriarty being back. And he observes that, yes, Holmes was preserved in honey, Jurassic Park mosquito style. Which was out at this time. Which gives him a lot to work with. Hargreaves' experimental process revives and de-ages Holmes. I'm still trying to find the science behind that one, but that's okay. Uh, Science fiction. I know. I didn't look too deeply into that one. Yeah. And Lestrade welcomes Holmes to the 22nd century. Commercial break. Yep. Back from commercial, Holmes is looking at what passes for food and already knows the woman is Lestrade's descendant. Eyes and brains yet again. Also, she was still wearing her badge. (laughs) Good line. That was, it was, it was a very good line. And also a lot of times in the canon, this does happen too, (laughs) which I loved. The the humor's good. As Holmes inquires about the crime wave he was brought back for, we get some repartee and exposition that Watson is turned off for the moment. At Lestrade's home, they learn that the cryptnotic process is further failing in other individuals, and Moriarty is Lestrade's lead suspect. Yeah, which he doesn't believe either. She hands Holmes a holographic learning device to get him caught up. And with a moment alone, he wonders what the world has come to. Yeah, he starts off, I think, with uh, the 1920s and 30s, which was known as the golden age of crime. Chief Grayson is beside himself with all of this. But Lestrade has him over a barrel, and he eventually acquiesces. Yeah, he doesn't have much of a choice. Which brings into the thing, it is better to uh, do the thing and beg for forgiveness than, you know, ask for permission. Lestrade grabs a caught-up Holmes and formally introduces Watson. And she then instructs Watson to read the real thing's books. Well, scan them anyway. Turns out she has them because they're family heirlooms. Thank you for closing that potential now-wait-just-a-minute moment from being a thing show. Yeah, they're they're Watson's journals and... It made sense because towards the end of the canon, uh, Lestrade became very close friends to Holmes and Watson. So I can see Watson leaving his journals to Lestrade. They arrive at the Kryptonic lab where another crook is being processed. And as Grayson arrives to snark. 
So this oh. is the dead detective. Yeah. <laughs> Holmes has the matter thought out within half a minute and gamely snarks back at the chief. Just love the, the interplay between all the characters in this show. The perp is eventually picked up by Fenwick, but Holmes insists they return because the main computer is under attack, but not necessarily by Moriarty. And Holmes also advises manual override on the car. Holmes has deduced that since all the systems are linked to the main computer, that's where to go. And it is there that Moriarty is wreaking havoc. Or at least what we believe to be Moriarty. Oh, I'll explain in a bit. Yep. Lestrade is shot aside in the action sequence, which ends with Watson recovering her before a grenade can go off. Yep. So the human trio bicker over who the perpetrator is, and Holmes makes the observation that though it looks and acts like Moriarty, it may not be the real deal. Mm-hmm. Watson has started absorbing his namesake's mannerisms because... Um, because, uh, look, it just sort of happens without much, much explanation in this episode. It even catches Holmes off guard, but apparently Lestrade saw it coming. Yeah, this is not one of those everyone laughs moments either. They, she just she just looks at him and goes, well, elementary, my dear Holmes. And she ends, the episode ends on that moment. I forgot to explain to James that he probably should watch the next two episodes because they're all kind of part of uh, uh, an overarching explanation to this. So the first episode, The Rise and Fall of Sherlock Holmes, really does a lot to build up the world of New London, um, which is where it takes place. Old London is actually the ground level, and then New London takes place above it. So New London is above Old London. The next episode is The Crime Machine, which goes into why the cryptic programming doesn't work and also looks into the crime spree going around London where bits and pieces of a different tech companies are being stolen from. So they actually start to go into it. Um, Holmes is not exactly okay with uh, having to take orders from Lestrade because remember, he's a Victorian gentleman. He's from a time where women don't have a whole lot of power. So this episode shows a little bit of a power struggle between Lestrade and Sherlock as well. We do get to understand how, and him also dealing with the fact that this robot now sounds like his old best friend, Dr. Watson. So he also has to deal with the fact that the world has changed around him. Uh, in this episode, we do get more hints of what has happened. We find... The episode starts with them going to Reichenbach Falls so Sherlock can show why he says this is not Moriarty. We find Moriarty's dead body encased in ice underneath the falls. But Sherlock Holmes notices that there is a small hole drilled in the ice to the dead body. They get out of there before the whole cave collapses, effectively cutting it off. They go through... They find out what's going on and they find that there was a machine built that is completely reverting all of these criminals back to their old selves. And they're the ones or even and even common citizens stealing these parts for something bigger. The next episode is the hounds based off of the hounds of Baskerville on the moon where people are where this uh, people are getting kidnapped. They go up there. They find there's a blackmail plot of this engineer and then they meet Moriarty, 
but it's not Moriarty. It is a clone of Moriarty. Martin Fenwick actually stole some DNA from the dead body of uh, Moriarty, created a clone. He decided he was going to brainwash the clone to be his servant. Moriarty is too smart for that and ended up taking Fenwick and turning Fenwick into his servant instead. And now Moriarty is back and is out to create his criminal empire once again. By the end of all this, Sherlock realizes that uh, he accepts Watson as his partner and he accepts Lestrade as an ally. Also in this, they meet the Baker, the now new Baker Street Irregulars. So we now have a Wiggins, we have a Deidre, and we have a Tennyson. And they're all different um, characters. Tennyson does not actually have a voice actor in this. He speaks through sounds and he is a computer genius. Deidre is a young girl who is uh, very fashion forward and is also a pickpocket. And Wiggins is a young man who once was a pugus as, and also a firm rugby player who now tries to get through school has a girlfriend named JC and pretty much runs the other in regulars just like they are in the books. How'd I do? I, I think that was pretty concise. Excellent. Now we... on to the next episode that I gave you. After this commercial break. Excellent. We'll be back after these messages. On the next Penny and James podcast. Hey, Paisanos, it's the Super Mario Brothers Super Show. If you were a kid in the late 80s or early 90s, you had Mario fever. And yet, Nintendo wanted the brand to get even bigger. So they went to deep, and the result was the Super Mario Bros. Super Show. Warp down to the Mushroom Kingdom with us in two weeks. Now, back to our show. James, why are you dancing? I'm training to be a pip. Oh, Lord. Hey, come on. It, it might happen. I know the pips are all retired, but... Okay, I know we haven't cracked that much puns in this, and Sunset has not had a reason to come after us yet. But we also don't need to lose our, our viewership because of dancing. Okay. Mercifully, this is audio only. Thank God. <laughs> So our next episode is The Five Orange Pips, based on Doyle's story of the same name, and adapted to this series by Greg Johnson. And this episode, like I presume the majority of them going forward, has a cold opening. Yeah, they almost all do. In it, a kid on a hoverboard delivers a package to a manor where old tech is used in favor of what's modern for the 22nd century. The owner is Joseph Openshaw, and his son John delivers the package. And inside is a letter reading, For the antidote, place it on the sundial. He has as much idea as I personally do what that means. But upon his discovery of the letter's contents, the eponymous pips, which is another word for orange seeds, he's mm -hmm. suddenly stricken ill. Yeah. If you actually read the actual story, this is pretty close to it, just brought into a more modern age. And you realize, you learn pretty quickly how he gets sick. So, this is another heavy episode. Yeah. Joseph also insists he not be taken to a hospital under any circumstance. He scrawls a message on some paper in the next room, but his condition deteriorates to the point he cannot open a door. John has to break a stained glass window, 
Wesley would not approve. I do not approve, but, you know, Desperate Times does call for dust and But that was a really pretty well-drawn, that was a pretty stained glass window, man. And the father can only utter, find Sherlock Holmes. Open to, after the opening, we now come to 21B Baker Street. John reaches there and Holmes recognizes the kid's garb as being a replica of his own time. Oh, I forgot to say in the quick thing is that uh, the Sherlock Holmes Museum actually donates 21B Baker Street for Sherlock Holmes to move in, live in. And he now lives there with Watson. We don't get a Miss Hudson in this cartoon show, Nick. Bugs me. She was awesome. So the boy explains the situation, including the no hospital stipulation, and Holmes calls for Watson, which the kid does not appreciate. Yeah, get your mechanical creature away from me. Dude, calm down. Holmes exposits that the young John is an anti-technologist, raised to abhor modern means. While John insists Watson doesn't go, Holmes won't budge on the matter. Yeah, he's like, if he doesn't go, I don't go. Make your choice, kid. Now, I have not read The Five Orange Pips, the original story, so I'm assuming there's an anti-doctor bias of some sort in in the original? So the original story is actually based off of the KKK. Oh, So the young man in that story's father was a member of the KKK. He fled the KKK and came to England. The father received five five orange pips and was told to put documents that exposed certain members of the KKK on a sundial. The father had burned a lot of those documents, so he put what he had on the sundial. Uh, It wasn't enough to appease the person, and so the person killed the father. The son inherits the um, estate, and the guy sends the son five orange pips. Now, the son has no idea because the son was not raised that way. So the son, who is very concerned, he just knew that when his father got the five orange pips, the father was scared. So he goes to Sherlock Holmes, tells Sherlock Holmes what happens. Sherlock Holmes prefaces what's wrong, and he says, listen... You need to put a note saying this is what it is. Put it on the sundial you, because this, these people will kill you. When the son goes to go back to his estate to do this, the son is killed on the way back to the estate by the person who sent him the five orange pips. Sherlock Holmes is pissed. Mm. So he, he figures out who did it, but the person is already on a ship back to America. So he sends a letter back to America to greet this person. And he gets a hold of someone. He sends a telegraph to a friend of his in America to send this guy five orange pips who did it. Unfortunately, the guy who did it's ship sinks in a horrible storm. So justice was gotten through England, but it's the one case where it's one of the few cases where Sherlock Holmes was not able to save somebody. Oh my. Yeah, it's heavy. But in the cartoon, spoiler alert, he does, he's actually is able to save these people. Right. Yeah. Now, at the manor, a hooded figure watches Holmes' arrival, and Watson scans the patient while reassuring John his dad will be okay. Holmes finds the pips and wonders where Gladys Knight went off to, I mean, collects them. <laughs> as Watson enters to explain that Joseph is in a coma with no apparent cause. 
Holmes sniffs toxin on the pips as someone tries to get into the manor. It's the hooded figure, who turns out to be Elias, Joseph's brother and John's uncle. Quotation marks. Yeah. And yes, Elias is also an anti-tech. Holmes and Elias are off to a frosty start, as the former explains what he's deduced. That Openshaw isn't their name, they're hiding, and the killer knows Joseph has something of value that they want. Upon presenting the pips, Elias is stunned, and Holmes knows he must recognize their significance. Yeah, Elias is as shady as F in this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he denies the whole thing, and Holmes is left with little choice but to have Watson watch over Joseph. Back at Baker Street, someone in semi-conspicuous ninja garb is looking to get in via a rope and grapple as Holmes analyzes a pip for natural substances. The computer finds perfolian root essence from a plant native to Africa, which causes all of Joseph's symptoms, except it also slows the heart. I forgot to mention... Watson says Joseph's heartbeat is remaining steady. Mm -hmm. I will state this. uh, This is actually not a real plant, but that's also very common for the canon too. Doyle was known for making up plants and animals to cause some of the things. And it's a fun thing by Sherlockians to try to find what the real world equivalent that inspired it was. So, yeah. Oh, there's one other thing about the plant. It has no known antidote, according to the computer. Yeah. So the quote-unquote ninja shuts down the power as another man in a dark purple overcoat leaves the building, which I'm guessing is Holmes in disguise. At this point, it's confirmed Uh, later. You would be correct. (laughs) Elias, meanwhile, scolds the unconscious Joseph over a warning that Watson wants to know the specifics of, but Elias' anti-tech biases hold really strong. Yeah. You you really don't like Elias in this. You're like, you're, you're an ass. <laughs> you are an ass. Elias uh. shoves Watson aside, and John feels compelled to explain. But Watson does send Elias' handprint to New Scotland Yard for analysis. John's anti-tech sentiments are wavering, as he observes to Elias that a person poisoned his father, not a robot. Yeah, he's like, why do we hate robots when it's a person who did this and there's a robot who's trying to save my dad? Like, he's like, this does not make sense to me. You really feel for John in this episode. Yeah. he's, He's really stuck. Elsewhere, the most recent disguised man in the purple overcoat asks for a shipment of the Profolian, which is quickly explained to be black market material by the dock worker, which is why the man went to that dock. I was like, that's black market. Why do you think it came from my dock? Because it is black market. And the guy's like, okay, that's fair. (laughs) He's like, yeah, that's fair. Here. (laughs) But he's too late. It's been picked up and signed for by someone. And the disguised man has to bribe 10 credits to the dock worker for a scan of the signature. And, yeah, as we figured, the disguised man is Holmes. The whole exchange between him and the dock worker is just like, boom, boom, boom. And I'm like, wow. The guy's like, because it is black market. And the dock worker's just like, yeah, you're right. Here. 
Like, it's just like, dude, you couldn't fight more on that? Like, Taking it to New Scotland Yard, Lestrade finds a handwriting match for an E. Hawkins, a tech saboteur. The five pips were a calling card of the group he was part of. And they had a microbot that could permanently disable automatons. But the group's leader, Joseph Openshaw himself, though under a different name back then, Mm -hmm. shut down the operation, and that's apparently why he became a recluse. Now, the other things in this big old exposition dump, the whole that whole thing was 11 years ago. The microbots could also exploit and disable New Scotland Yard's DNA database. And Holmes's main question is, why now? Why is somebody interested in it now, 11 years later? What is the new player on the scene? Watson's scan comes back. Finding Elias is also one of the former saboteurs. Another couriered letter arrives. John's saying it's from Holmes. But even Ray Charles could see coming that it's another envelope of pips. And Watson's like, Holmes wouldn't have sent you something. Let me see that. Because obviously if it's poison, it's not going to affect a robot. And Elias just is so against robot. He's like, how dare you tell me what to do in my own home? Uh, Dude, it's not your house. Two, someone's trying to kill you. Three... Dude, the robot can't get sick from anything. What's Let him touch the envelope first. Once he realizes what's up, Elias rages against, well, whatever's in front of him. Or in the case of the Poisoner, whatever isn't in front of him. Mm-hmm. Once Holmes arrives, he and Watson discuss matters and asks if Elias's heart rate has decreased. It has. Which is the opposite of what happened to Joseph. And Holmes has a deduction. Joseph has a cybernetic heart. That saved his life. Watson's analysis finds both that it has a fifth chamber and it was a model made 11 years ago, right when Joseph disbanded the saboteurs. Dun, dun, dun. So Joseph had to betray his beliefs to get himself a life-saving treatment. In the face of this, John is stunned, and Watson tries to comfort him, but the, quote, ninja, unquote, storms in, and John actually saves Watson from being disabled. Yeah, which is very appreciated by Watson, by the way. Holmes tackles the invader and wonders where his backup is. The backup is just Lestrade, since Grayson denied any more manpower. Jerk. You can use a stronger word there. We've already broken that milestone at this point. Um, you yeah, do, but jerk is is quick and concise. Fair enough. Um, but we also do. But I will say this for Lestrade: uh, in crime, if you ever, if you, as you watch the other episodes and you watch how this girl works, I will state she is enough to take on. I, she she's kind of an army and a destructive force in herself. So I would take one Beth Lestrade over a whole SWAT team. Fair. I would recommend watching the Sussex Vampire episode of this cartoon to understand what I'm talking about. (laughs) So as she stands guard, Holmes, Watson, and John hypothesize as they go over the facts. As they do so, I start to realize what's happening, and thankfully the show doesn't waste time. The cyber nest with the microbots 
is in the fifth chamber of Joseph's synthetic heart. That's why he didn't want to go to a hospital. Mm-hmm. Imagine if he went to a hospital and they took it out and they weren't careful with it and that got loose in a hospital. No kidding. Watson quickly retrieves it thanks to the miracles of 22nd century science and technology. But another, quote, ninja, unquote, eavesdrops on the discussion and calls for his allies to move in. Ninjas. Yeah. Watson, understandably, would rather Holmes hold the cyber nest. And the latter's examinations indicate it's a biovirus dynamo. Just then, Lestrade tells the group they've got company, and they're off to New Scotland Yard. Mm-hmm. En route. Holmes and Lestrade puzzle over why anti-tech types are using hover cars with modern inhibitor beams. And be good shots, too. Yeah, they, they are extremely good shots. The assailants hit the vehicle and Lestrade has to switch to manual. One pursuer is shaken off, but the second downs the car with Watson and John. There's also, I will state in this, there's also a lot of jokes about um, Lestrade's driving. Oh, dear. There's a lot of comments about that. I forgot to also mention that. But yeah, it, it this is also another good point here. It's like, if these are anti-techs trying to get this, why are they driving hover cars? So Watson is about to take a direct disabling hit, but Holmes and Lestrade intercept. That's good driving there. Yes, it is. And the former insists Moriarty remove his mask while Moriarty takes Lestrade hostage. Okay, what led Holmes to Moriarty? The fact that someone new had to be after the cybernest since it's been 11 years. Someone who would want to eradicate New Scotland Yard's records of his DNA. Exactly, which was a very new addition to it. Also, he's the new person on the scene that year. So, 11 years, no one's wanted this thing. Why now? Who's the new person on the scene? Moriarty suggests a trade. The Cybernest for Lestrade. No deal. So the banker, I mean Moriarty, <laughs> dangles the antidote and tries to appeal to Holmes's memories of the 19th century without robots. Though Watson tries to appeal to logic, Holmes accepts on the condition that Moriarty warned the populace least life support systems and the like are compromised to a lethal end. Which he does agree to. John protests that Watson is his friend, but Moriarty just gloats as he casually tosses out the antidote. Slow motion news! All three protagonists leap for it, and thankfully Holmes catches it. As Watson and Lestrade ask what the hell he was thinking, he explains. The cybernest is obsolete and harmless. More suitable for a museum than an arsenal. Which most of us would actually know that because if you think about it, your iPhone, it comes obsolete in how many years now? Or how many months? Like, come on. Come on. Yeah. Joseph and Elias will make a recovery, but the matter hasn't changed their opinion of robots. Unlike John, whose young eyes and brain has seen a greater truth as the kid embraces Watson. Which means you do not touch people until you get to know them. 
there's that's the overarching theme of this uh this one is one of acceptance and open-mindedness it's one of my that's why i enjoy this episode a lot now this was episode 106 in the airing order here in the states but it was the 15th in the overall production order the episodes were jumbled around for u.s broadcasts both in order and in network you see Though conceived as one season of 26 episodes, only 13 made it to air in the UK on its original run, while its US airings were intended to air on family-oriented network packs before being moved to Fox Kids, where mm-hmm. 17 of the 26 aired. The rest would debut in syndication two years later. Yeah, which they're like, it's family-oriented. Yet there's still a couple episodes you're like, Okay. And we'll mention that in just a second, but Mm -hmm. Chrissy, you may push back on me a little of this, and I accept that coming, but this is just my opinion here. I'm going to, you'll have your opinion, and I will state mine. Overall, I think this series is too clever for its 20-minute episode runtime allotment. Uh, I, I actually will agree with that. The writers are game- to try not only to condense entire mystery stories into cartoons meant to be appropriate for all ages, though that does not explain the adventure of the engineer's thumb. Did you actually watch that one? That one is like, what? No, but I read a lot about it. It's all over TV tropes. You have to watch it. I will. You have to watch it because you will watch it and be like, who thought that was appropriate? With the way they took it. The actual story itself is much more disturbing. I would recommend reading the canon story after you watch it because the actual story itself is much more disturbing. So I understand how they grappled with trying to adapt that one. I will tell you that that actual story, like that actual episode, did not air a lot on TV. So it was one they made and they aired it maybe a few times. Um, That one really didn't air a whole lot. Regardless, not only did they condense them into the time frame, but they had to do so with an entire revision of the setting. In spite of all that, I could still feel that the premise was struggling to break free of the constraints of KidVid convention and be something bigger. I'm truthfully not sure how many new fans of Holmes this series could have picked up on Saturday morning in 1999 during the Dying Embers of that time slot as a haven for kids programming, especially since Fox dropped the series in December with their continual reshuffling of the schedule that season. There were like six revisions of their Saturday schedule that season. It was Mm -hmm. wild. By the time it reappeared in syndication, I have to imagine this style of cartoon looked more dated than it actually was since more stylized efforts on cable networks were the big thing capturing kids' imaginations in 2001. This is not to say the show was without its fans, just that like its lead character, it was out of its time. This sort of action series, which owes its stylistic look to the X-Men cartoons and similar contemporary action shows, was falling out of favor by 2001. Still, with it being part of the Deke Library, now owned by Wildbrain, it is available for free on YouTube, meaning it can easily be found by anyone, kid or otherwise, looking for a different angle on a mystery show or just the Holmes and Canon itself. So, 
I'm going to push back just a little bit on it um, as someone who's actually been part of this fandoms in the early 2000s to now. I am one of the writers. I actually was a fanfic writer of this and I had been part of it. There is actually, if someone wants to actually go deep into the history of the show really good, there is a fan page that was run by a young lady whose online name is called Suburban Banshee. And she got a lot of the developmental materials Moriarty in this actually was not supposed to be a clone. Uh, the original concept art for him was to be a cyborg, which was a really cool concept, actually, for him to be part human and part cyborg. I actually wrote a lot of fanfic on this. One of the characters I created was Erica Noir, who was the 22nd century version of the Phantom of the Opera, who tangled with Holmes and the crew. So if anyone actually knew, was a fan of this and read some of the stuff, I was, my name was Maisha Wolf and I wrote different fanfics in the early 2000s. There, there's my deep, darkest secret. Ha ha. But there was a huge fan community. There were people who loved this and they were all across the world. So, and these were people who then eventually got into Sherlock Holmes and got into it through this show. So... It, I agree. 20 minute episodes is not enough time for as much as they wanted to do with these characters. And they wanted to do a lot with these characters. Holmes stories started out as short stories that Doyle wanted to write to make money. Don't get it twisted, people. He was not out to write great literature with Sherlock Holmes. And anyone who reads the canon will tell you, those of us who dive deep enough into the canon, there's a lot of plot holes. Um He's, he's, I do. I just want to reemphasize. I'm not saying the show didn't have fans. I'm just not sure it was reaching the audience advertisers wanted. Well, you, advertisers ruin everything. I'm going to be honest. No, they're not. But for, but for a network p- p- paying the bills. Yeah. The thing. The thing is, is I think the show was more popular than the networks realized. Networks wanted to see. I mean, you're not going to have something as big as He-Man or GI Joe or Transformers. But they didn't. I don't also think that this time they were not giving. If it wasn't an immediate hit out of the gate, then they 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 casted it off to the side. They they did that with a lot of good shows. That if they gave it a chance and gave it time. That's what they did. Like you said, they were shuffling this thing around. Well, if you shuffle shows around, you're going to lose whatever audience it starts to establish. They want an immediate hit with cartoons back then. They didn't give it a whole lot of chance to take off. They did it with Reboot. And Reboot is a fantastic show that when they when people started rediscovering, actually started watching and they're like, why did you do this? This show is fantastic. What is wrong with you? And that's an early CGI show. And this show is the same way. It's hard to adapt Sherlock Holmes stories. It truly is. I think the only TV adaption that really nails it, nails it well, is the Granada series with Jeremy Brett, which was not going on in the 80s on British TV. I truly love this this is one of my favorite Sherlock Holmes cartoons um, out there next to Great Mouse Detective, but Great Mouse Detective is kind of its own thing. I think if they gave this more of a chance, Fox didn't start shuffling stuff around like Fox likes to do. This definitely could have done more. I think Saturday morning is a bad time for this. I think actually an after, uh, a weekday afternoon would have been a good slot for it because that's when older kids are watching because this is really more for older kids yeah putting this on 8 a.m when most older kids were asleep 
Oh yeah. This is definitely something that is more for um, a teenage kind of a young teenage range, I think is a better time slot for this. It's like Dungeons and Dragons. It's not meant for young kids. This is meant for early teenagers who can understand some of these more complex stories. I like this one because it respects its audience. It doesn't treat the audience like it's stupid and it respects its time. It gives you all the clues you need to figure out the mystery with Holmes, which is more sometimes than the books do. It, it's, it's respectful. It's funny. It's smart. It doesn't treat you like you're stupid. And I love shows, especially cartoon shows that respects its audience. So overall, I, I, again, I'm not saying it doesn't have its fans. I'm just saying it's not a huge SpongeBob or Kim Possible level sensation. This is a strong cult following show and it deserves its cult following. Yeah. I just, I think it could have been more if, Fox didn't start messing with stuff. Yeah. Or if they just put it on at 10 o'clock. I think, yeah, if it had a later time, I think it would have been fine. You know, they did actually release um, the episodes on DVD back in the early 2000s. They did do um, a two volume release on DVD of the, of the 26 episodes. Deke did. And then Deke sold the rights. And now they're, they're kind of owned. The library is now owned by wild brain. You can, like you said, you can find him on YouTube. Before uh, Wild Brain put it on YouTube, there was a guy, his name was Sean Chap, who put all 26 episodes on YouTube for free. And then I think he got a, I think the user got into like, they got into like a, a, a huge thing with uh, whoever had between Deke and Wild Brain about him having it up there. And he's like, listen, the DVD release you had is not out anymore. No one can buy it. Unless you're going to put him back out on DVD so you can make money off of this, uh, I have a right to put this up. And he won. Because huh? they were still up. <laughs> his, his, his uploads of the cartoon are still up. On right YouTube. alongside Wild Brain's uploads. Yeah. And when Wild Brain uploaded, he, um, he actually asked them, do you want me to take down my uploads? And they're like, yeah, no, keep them up. They were like, yeah, no, keep it up. It's not doing anything. Huh. Oh, okay. Only more companies could be that flexible. Yeah. I mean, you would think building that kind of rapport with fans would be elementary, my dear Chrissy. <laughs> oh, keep digging, James. Although, uh, I, I, given the relationship between the two of us, it probably should have been you telling me something was elementary. Surprisingly enough, that actually does not show up in the canon. But the game is afoot. And right now... Before we end this game, I think it's time to restock the breakfast cereal. Uh, yes, indeed. I have my BJ's card. Folks, we will see you in two weeks. Have a lovely time. In the, in the meantime, we appreciate each and every download, all the, whatever, all the feedback we get. And if you want to contact us, we'll have the information in just a few seconds after the outro. Good night, everybody. Bye. To the penny and James to the sort of hopefully funny cartoon. The preceding podcast is a co-production of the Mighty Monkey Corporation and Artificial Orange Studios. The theme song is written, composed, and performed by Sean Michael Smith. For questions and comments, email me at james at fc3roc.org.